This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, it's true. A few months ago, we commented about how we thought we needed to pare back our our output over the summer because there were other pressing things that were going to require our attention. And we certainly have cut back a bit, but it was recently remarked by a diligent listener that we have had more output than she expected over the summer. And, and, well, I guess she's right and good. So here we are again, Mr. McMillan. The truth is there's a certain amount of therapeutic value in mouthing off about all the terrible things going on and just pointing out some of the deficiencies in um, the rest of the news coverage that floats around among us. Not to say that it's all bad. Some of it's pretty good. But uh, a lot of it seems to amount to what Steve Bannon has referred to, or I'll paraphrase in this case, as a, uh, a fire hose of detritus. And yes, there's not much doubt about it. The market has been flooded with bad data. Speaking of that, our next program will involve a talk with author Lee McIntyre about his book On Disinformation with the subheadline, How to Fight for Truth and Protect Democracy. We're looking forward to that. We like to think that's been one of our main causes over the past couple decades. And it is our hope that we can somewhat disprove the the old adage, in this case a quote to an alternate from journalist Bob Herbert, that, quote, if history tells us anything, it's that we never learn from history, end quote. Yeah, George Santayana once said that those who do not know history are condemned to repeat it, but here at Radio Parallax, we fear that even those who do know history are still condemned to repeat it. Let's take a whack at what's going on right now, which is, I would say, as of late, that Donald Trump has been indicted now a fourth time. But lest you do overmuch rejoicing, dear listener, at, uh, at this turn of events, keep in mind that this doesn't necessarily hurt Trump, at least from the viewpoint of the Republican Party, or a substantial part of the Republican Party, and certainly not among the MAGA crowd. For example, 45% of Republicans say they would not vote for Donald Trump if the former president were convicted of a felony by a jury, but 35% said they would still support him. 52% of Republicans said they would not vote for Trump if he were in prison, but 28% said they would. And 75% believe the indictment of Trump on criminal charges is just politically motivated. The New York Times took a deep dive into this, uh, this aspect of Trumpism, which they summarized under the headline, How Trump Benefits from an Indictment Effect. As you'll no doubt recall, last March, former President Trump put a social media post out saying he'd be arrested the next week. Protest, he wrote on his Truth Social website, take our nation back. And wouldn't you know it, this set in motion events that profoundly altered the course of the Republican nominating contest. Donors sent checks. Fox News changed its tune. The party apparatus rushed to defend Trump, and his poll numbers went up and up. The article delves into how their analysis shows that Trump's dominance over the party reveals years of conditioning of millions of Republican voters who who view Trump's legal troubles as a proxy attack on them. The piece notes that for nearly two years, Fox News and Rupert Murdoch's broadcast empire had been weaning itself off Trump and instead elevating Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. 
As a New York Post headline celebrated his 20-point re-election win put it, DeSantis was the future of the Republican Party. DeSantis' office closely coordinated with Fox producers to create flattering segments about his achievements in Florida, especially his handling of COVID, which was heralded as a heroic act of governance in the face of leftist opposition. Fox programming centered on themes and villains that DeSantis had built his brand on, fighting transgender athletes, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and all things woke. But after Trump's first indictment, the priorities of the conservative movement and its media ecosystem shifted. Influential conservative talk radio hosts rallied behind Trump. Even commentators who liked DeSantis, such as Mark Levin, took on the indictments as a personal mission that seemed to override other priorities. Glenn Beck, used to warn about the dangers of Trump, went on Tucker Carlson's now-canceled show on Fox, put on a MAGA hat and declared that America, we know, the fundamental transformation that started in 2008 is finished. Meaning, I guess, that Trump still is the guy to undo Obamaism. But here's the thing, notes the New York Times. Trump's indictments didn't just occupy a 24-hour news cycle. The cases consumed whole weeks on both mainstream and conservative media, each following a pattern. There was the week of rumors before the indictments, then indictment day, arraignment day, and then the post-arraignment analysis. Now, the article does point out that Trump did not get uh, quite the bumps on his second and third and presumably now fourth indictments he did on his first. But still, it's not hurting him among his base. It's helping him. Now, of course, the real battle in America involves uh, the undecided voters, which has certainly swing things to Democrats. They certainly did for Biden in 2020. But the fact of the matter is, it's the conservative base that dominates the party and the nominating process. Because, well, what is a political party but a gang of people? It's one of the great puzzles of my life that we somehow accept this inane two-party system we have in this country of so-called Republicans and so-called Democrats as a legitimate way to run a modern nation. And you know, one of the few examples I've noticed in my lifetime where you can get true bipartisan partnership between the two major parties to get things done is every time a third party arrives that might challenge their dominance of the political system. When that happens, they unite and do their best to stomp out the newcomer. Since I'm on the subject, let's, let's just take a look back at the 1990s. George Herbert Walker Bush, as big a ninny who's ever been president of the United States, was thought to be unbeatable after his government, his military-industrial complex, set up a phony baloney war in Kuwait by pretty much greenlighting Saddam Hussein to invade the country, telling him that we would regard that as a local matter. The second he did it, Bush 41 came forward and said, we got to stop naked aggression. This is the worst since Hitler. Anyway, Georgia got challenged by a young, charismatic governor of Arkansas named Bill Clinton, and Clinton might have beat him straight up in a one-on-one -on -one contest. But that election back in 1992 involved a third party, the Reform Party, which was a party built by Ross Perot, which did pretty well. In two states, Ross Perot took second, although he did not manage to win any uh, electors in our jerry-rigged electoral college system. Oh, Ms. Brindlin's inquiring as to what, what, the, what the vote count was in the state. I, I believe in Utah... Uh, Perot took second to Bush, with Clinton coming in third. There was another state, perhaps it was a District of Columbia, actually, where uh, where Clinton took first, Perot took second, and, and Bush took third. I don't know. I know I know there was two states. 
Well, Ross Perot faced uh, a lot of opposition from both parties. He decided to run again in 1996, went back and forth on it, and you know couldn't decide. Remember, there was a rally on the Capitol steps in the late 1990s that uh, yours truly rode his bicycle over to check out. I had a nice chat with uh, KGO radio personality Bernie Ward at that time. Anyway, I was impressed with the numbers of people who had come from all over California and perhaps other western states to join this rally at, uh, at the Capitol in Sacramento for the Reform Party. They felt very strongly that the Democrats and Republicans were not getting the job done. Something that, well, we're quite sympathetic to here at Radio Parallax. But uh, if you fast forward to the year 2000, you will note that there was a bit of chicanery involving the Reform Party. A lot of money was spent to put an outsider in charge of the Reform Party, at least an outsider in terms of the Reform Party itself. The guy that won the nomination for the Reform Party back in 2000 was Patrick Buchanan, a Republican operative just a few rungs above the Roger Stone uh, caliber who had been instrumental in Nixon's taking of the presidency in the 60s and had a, a large role to play in Ronald Reagan's presidency. Pat Buchanan got the nomination. And not to spend too much time on this, but if you'll recall that notorious butterfly ballot back in Palm Beach County, you might recall that there was an unusual spike of votes for Pat Buchanan because the way the ballot was arranged, people thought they were voting for Al Gore and instead inadvertently voted for Pat. Seems like a minor mishap, except that when it was all said and done, Buchanan's extra 2,000 votes, which came out of the Gore tally, was pretty critical when you consider that he lost the state by 537 votes. But I digress. And although we have bagged on the party system in, in this country, uh, one of our regular correspondents, uh, Gordon Smith, our, our Turkish correspondent, pointed out to me many years back that, yeah, it's true that, you know, you can say they're both bad, but it's not to say that one isn't a lot better than the other. And we would have to agree that when Ralph Nader offered up that argument back in 2000, it made absolutely no difference. Oh, and he himself drained away at least enough votes in the state of New Hampshire to put it in the Bush column instead of the Gore column. Well, you have to look back and say, you know, if that hadn't happened, it wouldn't have mattered how many votes they stole in Florida. George Bush wouldn't have been president. Anyway, back to the fact that it's the Republican base that are, picks the Republican candidate. Uh, we would note that on the morning that Trump was arraigned for his last uh, indictment, the third one, he joked that what, would, what he needed to secure victory was one more indictment. Mr. Miller points out, well, he asked for it and now he's got it. We'll see where that goes. But yeah, I'm looking at a, at a picture here of the, uh, one of his indictments. Might have been the second one where Trump is glowering at the camera surrounded by Secret Service agents and police. And, of course, my reaction is to look at the picture and think, good, he's getting what's coming to him. But let's just take a look at the alternate universe of the Republican Party. I don't know much about the writer Kevin Williamson or The Dispatch, but I have to laugh at the following line of reasoning. Donald Trump's attempted coup d'etat was no doubt a moral crime against democracy and the United States, but was it a crime in the legal sense? Noted Mr. Williamson, unlike the so-called Mar-a-Lago documents case where it seems easy to prove Trump illegally retained and refused to turn over classified materials at his Florida state, special counsel Jack Smith's indictments last week, this is the third go-round, charging Trump with trying to overturn the 2020 election, is, quote, 
full of uncertainties and complications that make it very difficult to foresee the outcome, end quote. And uh, I don't know, it seems like a pretty clear-cut case of, of a putsch to this correspondent, but writing in the USA Today, Ken Tran said Trump's lawyer, John Laurel, will base Trump's defense on those uncertainties just mentioned. Lawyer Laro has argued that when Trump asked Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes for him, or repeatedly pressured Vice President Mike Pence to reject states' official slates of electors, he was merely exercising his right to free speech, and that his, quote, asks, unquote, were, quote, aspirational, unquote. Besides, Laura claims, Trump believed in his heart of hearts that he'd won the election, so there's no fraud or criminal intent in his strenuous efforts to overturn it. Yes, as Alice in Wonderland once said, things are getting curiouser and curiouser. Writing in the Washington Post, Jennifer Rubin said, these specious and silly defenses won't save Trump. If a robber tells the bank teller, I want all the money in the vault, well, that too is aspirational speech, but it is also a crime as is pressuring officials to change the results of an election. In addition, Trump just didn't express an aspiration that Raffensperger invent enough votes to declare Trump the winner. The sitting president warned a key state official that he'd face risk and would commit a criminal offense if he didn't comply. Whether Trump believed he won is legally immaterial, says Jessica Levinson in in MSNBC.com. If I sincerely believe my neighbor stole my wallet, that doesn't entitle me to burglarize his home for compensation. Smith widely focused his indictment on Trump's criminal actions. His demands that Raffensperger give him one more vote to Joe Biden, his relentless berating of Pence and the lies he told to get fake electors to sign fraudulent paperwork are all powerful evidence of corrupt intent. And while the New York Times and the person of David French said, oh, it's not that simple to persuade a jury Trump acted corruptly, Smith does need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump knew he lost. That makes this a difficult case. Charlie Savage, also in the New York Times, said, actually, Smith has all the evidence he needs. Numerous credible aides and officials, including Attorney General Bill Barr, the White House counsel, and Republican governors repeatedly told Trump there was no evidence of widespread fraud. Pence said that when he told Trump he had no authority to unilaterally change the electoral vote count, Trump shot back, you're too honest. When acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen told Trump there was no evidence of fraud, Trump replied, Just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Writing in the National Review, Noah Rothman, and the National Review is, as you probably know, dear listener, a notable conservative publication, said clearly, if Trump was blind to his loss, his blindness was willful. The facts show that Trump had no rational basis to believe or claim the election was stolen. By corruptly trying to keep himself in power, nonetheless, he triggered one of the darkest days in this country's history, one whose damage is outgoing. This is a trial America observes, and I'm not sure which one he's referring to, but now that looks like there may be four. Let's hope five or six. And by the way, why is it we're stuck with Joe Biden as the Democratic Party nominee? I mean, I I know the answer to that because there's so much potency and power in being an incumbent that parties never turn their back or almost never turn their back on an incumbent. The last time I, I think that a party did that was, let me think here, 
1884, sitting President Chester Allen Arthur was denied the nomination by his party because, well, he surprised them by being too honest as president. Chester Arthur had had distinguished himself in the Republican Party by standing up to then-President Rutherford B. Hayes, who was trying to clean up the corruption in the New York Port Authority. Arthur stood up for the corruptors and got himself on the ticket in 1880. He'd never run for office, as far as I know, much like Donald Trump, come to think of it. And I can't resist mentioning, since this is Radio Parallax, we'd like to take a look back at things, that when James Garfield succumbed to his assassin's wounds in 1881, making Chester Allen Arthur the president, one of the Roger Stones of that era, I think it might have been uh, Republican operative Mark Hanna, responded with, Chet Arthur's president? Oh my God! Now it is true that back in 1968, Lyndon Johnson declined to run because it was clear the polls were so far against him he could not be re-elected. But that's where Hubert Humphrey came in. When he was president of the United States Senate, Lyndon Johnson helped the liberal Minnesota Democrat Humphrey to uh, get near the centers of power in the Senate. And although in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, this nation had no vice president until the 1968 election and Lyndon Johnson's choice made Hubert Humphrey the nation's veep. And although you might think that Johnson intended to turn the reins of power over to Hubert had he been elected in 1968, looking back on it, it seems pretty clear that LBJ wanted to be the puppet master over his, uh, his former pupil, saying at one point in a notable quote, I never trust a man till I got his pecker in my pocket. And I got Hubert's pecker in my pocket. Anyway, I don't want to be all doomy and gloomy. And you know, our good friend, Dr. Howard McKinney, is a guy we probably need to bring on more regularly on this program, pointed out there is some reason for rejoicing out there. In the state of Ohio, for example, abortion rights supporters won a major victory. They resoundingly defeated a ballot initiative that would have made it harder to enshrine the right to an abortion in the state constitution. By a margin of 56 to 43, Ohio voters rejected issue one, which would have required a 60% supermajority to amend the state constitution instead of a simple majority that has been the law for over a century. Republicans who hold the governorship in both houses of the legislature promoted the proposal in advance of a November ballot initiative that would guarantee the right to an abortion in Ohio. Issue 1 thus became a proxy battle over abortion rights. They spent $32 million in Ohio and with a voter turnout of nearly $3 million, which is pretty remarkable for a, an off-year election. Commenting on this, Aaron Gloria Ryan in the Daily Beast said in overturning Roe, a gloating Justice Sam Alito told Americans if they wanted abortion rights, they could always vote for them. She notes that angry voters are responding to Alito's challenge by accepting it. And so far, have protected those rights in purple to red states, including Kentucky, Kansas, Montana, and Michigan. Anyway, maybe we'll get Howard on to talk a little bit about that. Here's an item from the surprise, surprise, surprise category. Is that a new category? Yeah, I just invented it. Well, wouldn't you know it, it turns out the United States intelligence agencies have been manipulating Wikipedia for over a decade. That's according to Wikipedia's co-founder. I don't do that right now. Let's put that off to the second segment. 
Let's instead lighten the mood here a little bit with the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a few weeks back for Swifties, who apparently did so much singing, dancing, and jumping up and down at a Taylor Swift Eras concert in Seattle that they caused seismologists to register a 2.3, what they're calling Swiftquake. This prompts one commentator we know who is not a Swift fan to note that perhaps that these folks need a good Swift kick in the buttocks area. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for resets with the news that GOP presidential candidate and Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, offered to have a beer with New Hampshire primary voters for 50 bucks. He then cut the price to $1, and only 30 people showed up even then. Ron DeSantis insisted, we're making big, big progress in connecting with voters. And it was an ugly week. There's just no denying that it was an ugly week recently for the Secret Service. After the news that the Biden family German Shepherd commander has attacked agents guarding the president at least 10 times. Who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who let the dogs out? Evidently, a Biden spokesperson claimed that the White House is a, quote, unique and often stressful environment, unquote, for pet dogs, to which we would add, and, and also Secret Service agents. Now, as I recall, Mr. Miller, this is not a new story. There was, there, was an, uh, there was an article some time back we talked about about uh, the Biden family dog not getting along with uh, others. I believe the dog has bit a few people. We may have to research this. And finally, it was a both bad and ugly week, you got to admit, both, for a man in Atlanta. Apparently, the city of Atlanta mistakenly demolished the man's home in a mix-up over zip codes. And although that's bad, where it really gets ugly is the fact that they are now suing him for the cost of demolition. Everett Tripodis says that when he received a letter from the city, he assumed it was an offer of compensation. Instead, it was a bill for $68,000, said Tripodis. It's like the slap comes after the spit in my face. Mr. Millen suspects there's, there's more to the story there, but, you know, we have suspicious minds here at Radio Parallax. Let's see if we can't throw out a few more good news items here to round out this segment. One thing I feel the need to comment favorably upon is those little portable fans that, uh, that work surprisingly well. I gather there are, there are many brands that do this. Uh, Mr. Millen turned up a, a, a Ryobi fan recently that I was very impressed with. After having the fridge go kaput recently, I put some ice in the fridge to try and buy some time and put one of those little fans inside with it. And boy, lasted all night. And in an ever hotter world, it might be nice if we could get by with a simple, small fan instead of having to turn on the AC. That seems like potentially a very good thing. There's also, uh, I notice, uh, an effort among certain commercial enterprises to create an oasis for zero waste. Article in the East Bay Times refers to a store that is in San Mateo, 
which aims to take the stress out of sustainable living by providing containers that you can use and reuse. And boy, do we need this. Apparently, July was plastic-free month, where the challenge was to go the month without generating any plastic waste for things consumed, and I must say I failed that miserably. Although, in my defense, I was, I was unaware that it was plastic-free month last month. Anyway, the article in question about is, a, is about a store that is near San Mateo's uh, Caltrain station in which there are no single-use containers, no plastic wrap, and the proprietors there are determined to fill up your reusable shopping bags with coffee, eggs, dish soap, fruits, nuts, shampoo, laundry detergents, and yes, tubeless toothpaste tablets. I'm going to check this out next time I'm in San Mateo. There's a picture in the paper that shows a beaming woman holding up a sign that says, We've saved 62,334 plastic containers so far. Good. And here's one we cannot help rejoicing over. Apparently, the FCC has issued a record $300 million fine to the robocall operation responsible for issuing more than $5 billion five billion calls to a half billion phone numbers in the span of just three months in 2021. The spam calls were about extending your vehicle's warranty. I'll wager, dear listener, that you got one of those spam calls. I know I did. Of course, the FCC says it's now up to the Justice Department to collect. And let us hope, let us hope that our federal Justice Department goes after these clowns And we have a good news item here related to uh, GOP political thuggery, at least in the case of Tennessee. It turns out that Tennessee Democratic State Representatives Justin Pearson and Justin Jones got reelected to the legislature last week, four months after they were booted out from the GOP-dominated statehouse and thrust into the national spotlight over their involvement in a gun control protest on the House floor. They both won easy victories in their heavily Democratic districts, Pearson in Memphis and Jones in Nashville. Last March, Pearson Jones and Democratic Representative Gloria Johnson grabbed a bullhorn and joined thousands of protesters who flooded the Capitol building to demand gun reform following the fatal shooting of three nine-year-olds and three adults at a private Christian school in Nashville. Republicans accused the so-called Tennessee Three of violating house rules and of participating in an insurrection. Man, Republicans are are really selective about what they get worked over when it comes to insurrections, don't they? By the way, Representative Johnson, who is white, was not expelled, which did prompt us certain allegations of racism. I've got something for you. It's in honor of our new category. Our, our Our new category I just mentioned? Yep. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Oh, thank you for that. You're most welcome. Now, when it comes to outro music, I I, I really don't want you to. Good God. Now I have to apologize to the listenership. Listening to Radio Parallax, and you take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. Stick around.